Discovery, go and throttle up. One, zero, zero, Welcome to Mission Control, where we give you step-by-step instructions on how to take your e-commerce store to levels only a rocket can reach. Each episode, we'll be interviewing an expert in the e-commerce industry that is going to give you simple, actionable advice on how to attract new customers, retain them, and build a brand that you are proud of. This show is brought to you by the makers of Rocket Car, an e-commerce service and solutions company. All right, welcome to the next episode of Mission Control. I am your host, Alex Ivanov from Rocket Car, and super excited to have our guest today, Jeff Roberts from Outseta. Thank you so much for ha- hopping in, Jeff, and uh, tell us about a little bit about what you do. Tell us about Outseta and where you're from. Yeah, thanks, thanks, Alex. Uh, so my name is Jeff Roberts. I'm talking to you from San Diego, California today. Uh, I'm one of the co-founders of Outseta, and Outseta is an all-in-one software product that helps you build really any sort of subscription business. So our customers are online communities that charge for access to their community on a subscription basis, um, SaaS founders building SaaS products, um, membership websites that charge for access to content. But the common theme amongst them is there's a subscription billing component and Outsetter brings together all of the tools that you need to run a subscription business. So subscription billing, CRM, email marketing, help desk, all brought together in a single platform uh, and designed for relatively early stage founders that are launching some kind of subscription business. Yeah, super exciting tool. And I've seen a lot of traction, you know, being developed in the past couple of years. You guys have been in, around for around six years, I think, correct? So yeah, it's exciting. <laughs> yeah, we've been at it for six years. Um, it's a huge product and, and we're bootstrapping it. So it took us really like two years to even get an MVP out the door. Um, year three, to be honest with you, we struggled. And then the last three years, we've uh, really been growing quite well. So we're, we're excited about uh, the future of the, the company and the product. And I know you have a few co-founders, but diving into your background, you come from a marketing background, and then you also had a little bit of a SaaS experience before you decided to start Outseta. Can you tell us a little bit more about your your journey here? Yeah, so I, I sort of found my way into the tech industry um, accidentally. Um, I went to college to be a, a writing major, actually. I, I thought I was going to like work for a newspaper or a magazine or something like that. Um, I got out of school in 2008, um, right when the economy was absolutely tanking. Um, so I kind of didn't know what to do. I went back to school and got an MBA. Uh, and long story short, the first job I got out of college was in a software startup. And I just kind of walked into a good situation without even realizing it. Um, spent five years at, at that company, um, building out their marketing team and figuring out how to market technology. Um, and along the way, sort of realized the inefficiencies that come with building a subscription business, which is ultimately where the idea for Outsetta was born. So I still think of myself as a marketer. That's sort of the skill set that I contribute to our founding team, or at least the primary skill set that I contribute. Uh, but I have my hands in a little bit of everything, as most founders do these days. <laughs> yeah, of course. Tell us a little bit about your co-founders, how you guys got connected and you know, just coming to the idea of let's start Outsetta and, and get started. Yeah, so uh, we I have two co-founders. Their names are Dimitri and Dave. Um, Dimitri was my boss at that first company that I worked for uh, out of college. So he was the CTO of the company. I was hired as the first marketing leader. And long story short, um, I was kind of pulling on Dimitri's coat sleeves and saying, hey, we need a real billing system. We need a CRM. We need email marketing tools. We need a help desk. Uh, I don't have the technical skill set as an English major to integrate these things. 
Um, and we realized that he was spending a ton of time integrating software tools that were required to, to build our business rather than what he should have been doing, which was building our actual software product. Um, so that's ultimately where the idea for Outsetter was born. Uh, but in terms of our co-founding team in general, the reasons uh, we came together are really twofold. Um, one was a lot of philosophical alignment on how we wanted to build the company. Um, and we can talk about that a little bit uh, more as we go. But the second was just we had very complementary skill sets. Um, Dimitri is a back-end developer. My other co-founder, Dave, is a front-end developer, and I'm a marketer. So between the three of us, we had the skill set we needed to, to build the product and take it to market. Perfect storm. Yeah. So let's dive into that. You know, we're going to definitely get into just the brand and, and how you guys like to present yourselves and be, you know, honestly, very transparent, very admirable. But when you talk about philosophical alignments, what does that mean? Yeah. So at the context of this company we worked at previously, um, first of all, we, we had a successful outcome. We had a good run. We had a lot of fun. Like I, there's no negative reaction to what occurred, but we took sort of the traditional Silicon Valley tech startup path. Um, we, you know, grew the business to a certain point. We were able to raise a bunch of money. We sort of, uh, you know, grew as fast as we possibly could. And one of the things that we recognized looking back on the experience was we had a lot more fun as a company of 20 people than we did as a company of 200 people. So that sent us down this path of doing a little soul searching and saying, if we are to launch another business, what would we do differently? And one of the things we kept coming back to was this idea that we wanted to stay small and independent by design. Um, and we wanted to sort of say, how far can we take a company? How much success can we have? Um, not to artificially like cap the growth of the company, but to say, if you know you only had 20 employees, how far could you take a business? And that's something that was really appealing to us and continues to be really appealing to us. And then another part of it was we just looked at how organizations scale, particularly when they do take on venture capital. And it's like every time you have a problem, the answer is throw more money at it or throw more bodies at it. And we saw a lot of inefficiency in that. And the example I'll give you is, is customer service. Uh, as your customer base scales and you're rapidly growing, you start just hiring more and more customer service reps. And one of the things we saw was those people within the context of the company in some ways became like a second class organization. They were you know, working in customer service, so they weren't compensated as highly. Um, we were kind of constantly rotating through people. And at the end of the day, a lot of the time people are reaching out for help and they're reaching out to someone who can't actually solve their problem. So we said, you know, in tandem with this idea of how far can we take a company with 20 people, what if we only hired, you know, experienced kind of A players and what if we make everybody do support um, so that if someone does reach out and has an issue, the person on the other end of the phone is someone who can actually solve their problem. Um, so those are kind of some of the fundamental things that we've done a bit differently. Um, and it's still very much a work in progress. Yeah, you guys are definitely breaking false beliefs in terms of structure and management. I mean, everyone says like you got to throw money at it or to your point, like just keep getting bigger in, in headcount. How do you, I guess my question is, how do you envision, like, let's say, you know, outside it becomes 10 times bigger tomorrow. Sure. Uh, what happens to the headcount and how does everybody not become uh, you know, abundantly overwhelmed? 
Yeah, I, I think uh, that that's an interesting question, and and to to be fair, not one that we've had to face yet. Uh, in terms of like, if this thing just exploded growth wise, how would we handle it? Um, I I think if that happened, we'd have to pick one of two paths. One, we would have to sort of acknowledge and say, you know, this thing is growing at such a rate that we can't keep up with it unless we you know do do something differently and. Maybe it's raise money. Maybe it's you know just start hiring in bulk and grow beyond the headcount that I, I mentioned. Um, or we could say we really want to stick to our principles. We don't want to adjust our strategy. And I, I could argue we could even say, you know, we're we're going to sort of counteract what's naturally occurring in the business. We don't want to have ten thousand customers. Maybe we'd rather have a thousand that are all paying us significantly more money. So I think that is all something that entrepreneurs don't think about enough. Um, like you can reduce how fast your company grows or how much support volume you have or any of those sorts of things by, for example, just raising prices. That's going to you know slow the growth of the business in terms of customer count, but it might actually allow you to grow revenue faster with a smaller customer base. So there's a lot of um, sort of knobs that you can twist to optimize for the type of business that you want to build. I totally agree. And I think it, that's one of the metrics that I've been paying close attention to. And I think a lot of companies, especially in you know Silicon Valley have is revenue per team member or just yep. overall, how much money are you making per headcount? And yep. there, you know, with technology, we're, we're making our jobs more efficient. And with the macroeconomic cycles that we've gone through, there's this realization in in the media that oh a lot of companies are overstaffed, overcompensated, uh, not as productive as they can be. Not to say sure. anything against individual people, but it's just kind of the way management has taken this trend for the past I don't know ten years of a, of a bull run of a market, right? Um, and plus all this funding available, like you said, people just throw money at it and hire people. Absolutely. But from a philosophical perspective, you you talk about how you, you guys are very transparent in Alpseta, like how yep. you want to stay, you want to manage yourselves and stay lean. And you talk about how like you want it to be the last company we ever built. Where does the thinking come from and, and why, how do you get like everyone bought into that concept? Um, and, and also I want to yeah. ask, because you said you have more fun at 20 people than 200. Yeah. Why do you think that is? I think when you grow beyond a certain amount, and 20 is certainly not like a, a magic number. It's just a number yes, we've, talked, we've yeah. talked a lot about um, internally for whatever reason. Um, but I think as soon as you get above a certain level, and it, I honestly think it's probably closer to 40 or 50 employees, there just becomes a need for more management. There becomes a need for a bit more bureaucracy. Things start to slow down. Um, you know, it's harder to, to move a 200 person ship than it is to move a 20 person ship. Um, so I think that's it more than anything. And those sound like negative attributes of running a larger company. I don't like in some ways they are, but I think it's just a natural thing. It's not like these companies are doing anything wrong to make themselves slow down or become more sluggish or whatever. It's just a reality of trying to move that many people in unison at the same time. Um, yeah. So in terms of how we kind of get people on board with this, I think that, like this is the most interesting part of this discussion to me. And it's we started talking about all this stuff from day one at Outsider. And if you go back and read like our first blog post, we talk about all this. And I had a lot of people reach out at that point in time saying, 
you know, you're a day one startup, you're getting ahead of yourself here when you're talking about <laughs> yeah. all of this stuff. Like, why are you, why are you doing this? Why aren't you just building your business? And the reason is the more you put out anything about your, your company structure, your brand, your values, all that type of stuff, people will self-select in or out. And I think that's actually a huge opportunity that a lot of companies miss. So as, as an example, um, we, we have a standardized salary that everybody at Outseta makes. It's $210,000 a year um, if you choose to work five days a week. And we can talk more about that too. But without question, um, we have three engineers on our team who on the open market are going to command a lot more than that. Uh, and that's just being perfectly frank. Uh, but they knew going into Outseta, this is how we want to build the company. This is what you're going to get paid. Um, there's other upside that you you can earn via profit sharing, via how we issue equity. Um, this either resonates with you or it doesn't. And we've, we've already found that um, as we've looked to hire for other roles, there's people who come and look at this and say, you know, I can go to Facebook and make 500 grand a year as a senior software engineer. And there's other people that say, this is really cool. I've always wanted to yeah. work in a company like this. And like, this is actually what's leading me to apply to Outseta in particular. So I, th I think like at the end of the day, having an opinion like that and, and putting that opinion out into the world is one of the biggest recruiting tools that you have. Would you classify that as one of the biggest factors behind this philosophy is, is making a place that people want to work at? A hundred percent. Absolutely. Like unequivocally, that's probably number one. Um, yeah. So the, this first software company that I worked for out of school, it's called Buildium, um, was doing a lot of similar things early on. And they just treated me amazingly as an employee. I've been working remotely since 2013. Like I got to a point a couple of years into that job where from a personal perspective, I wanted to move across the country to San Diego. And I had this job that I loved. And I asked my bosses, like, can I work remotely full time? with every intention of quitting if the answer was no. Um, they said yes, they gave me you know, free reign to go work remotely and pursue the things that I wanted to do in my personal life. And I just looked at my reaction to how I was treated as an employee. And I was already working my butt off and super loyal because I love the company. But the more they just gave me free reign and actually cared about me as a person outside of just what I could do for the company, the more fiercely loyal I became and the harder I worked. Um, yeah. So I think that's ultimately what we're after at Outsider. Not, not to make everybody like work backbreakingly hard, but like my number one motivation more than the technology we're delivering more than anything um, is to build a workplace where people love working so much. They're like, I would never work somewhere else. This company is enabling me to live the life that I want to live outside of just the work that I do at Outsida. Yeah. And going back to that decision that you, you say that they have to make is, oh, I could go somewhere else and make this, or this is really cool and I can make this and really love life and, and work at the same time. I think you talk about how work-life balance is kind of almost like a fallacy, but it's, it's, a, yep. it's an element of rep reciprocity. If you ask me, it's like, you Absolutely. know, this company is doing so much to support me, my life, what I want to do. And they're investing in me and I have to invest in them as well. It's a two-way, it's not That's transactional, right. but it's a two-way street. Yeah, and it's absolutely. Very admirable. Um, let's Before we get into the product, because we're going to get there, there's there's a lot here in terms of, we, we talked about the brand and the transparency. You guys are, it's, it's 
abundantly clear on your stance on a lot of things. Uh, you guys are, yep. it's right there on your site. You're, you publish it. Uh, you know, our producer, Victoria, who pointed out a lot of these things to me, I was just, I never had seen anything like it where you guys are like, hey, we don't do budgets or forecasts or here's our stance yep. or non-stance on certain political social issues. You guys literally publish your operating agreement. I've never seen anything like that. Yep. What's the mindset behind all this? And and have you guys gotten any backlash? Like what's what's the thought behind that, you know, as a management team? Yeah, um, I would say so part of the structure we haven't uh, really jumped into yet is we operate using what, what's called self-management. And it, it's sort mm -hmm. of an organizational design um, People generally aren't too familiar with it. Those that are have largely heard about it through the company Zappos, the, the shoe company. Um, they embraced sort of a form of it previously. But the sort of key concept is there are no bosses and there's no hierarchy in the organization whatsoever. Um, so we try to hire the absolute best people that we can. And then we let them sort of gravitate to the areas of the business where they can help the most. So I'm a marketer. I do most of the marketing, you know, my co-founders who are developers, they focus on development and they just kind of uh, help out wherever they can. But if you don't have hierarchy, if you don't have traditional management, what you do need to do to be successful as a business is give everybody all of the information. Uh, there can't be like a leadership team that goes into a room and closes the door and talks about the finances of the company if you're trying to build autonomy and allow people to sort of operate without a whole lot of oversight. So that means from um, not just a recruiting perspective, but from an internal perspective, every employee has access to all the information about the business. And it's not just all the information. Everybody's paid the same. Everybody earns equity that works the exact same way. There's no staff. There's no classes of stock or anything like that. And that's a prerequisite because we can't, uh, ask somebody to, you know, make a decision about whether to spend this budget or not, if they don't know the finances of the company. So it just comes back to this idea that in order to operate this way, there needs to be 100% transparency so that people can make sound decisions. So this is so uh, contrarian to the, to the typical way people run businesses, and there's nothing wrong with it. I guess my question is, most people don't do this maybe for some reason or whatever. Have you guys seen any, you know, backlash or ramifications to this or does it just work super well from the gate? I would say two things. Um, it's worked super well out of the gate, but to be fair, um, we're still a small team. We're five people full time and some contractors. Um, so I think the real challenge is, can we scale this and can this work at 10 people or 20 people? Or if we go beyond that, um, can it work beyond that? And to be fair, um, you know, we haven't demonstrated that yet. There are other companies that have used self-management and grow into bigger organizations. So we believe it can be true, but um, it is certainly aspirational to, to an extent. Um, I think the pushback, well, there's pushback and there, and there's also downsides to this. So I think if we get any form of pushback, it just typically comes from people to whom this means of operating is foreign. And to be fair, that that's everybody, right? Like no one is used yep. to working in a company with this structure. People are used to, you know, we do quarterly business reviews and the marketing team has a budget and um, all these practices that are just common in the business world. Um, and I think 
the funny thing is how uncomfortable people are deviating from what the norm is. Um, yeah. Something I like to advocate for is not so much you should look at Outseta and do the things that Outseta is doing, but you can build a business any damn way that you want to. And to be frank, there's a huge lack of innovation in terms, particularly in tech, in terms of how people build companies. So like my number one message on all this is just like, open your eyes. Um, Derek Sivers is a pretty well-known author in, in tech, but his he has a sort of a similar take, which is building your own business is your opportunity to sort of like build your utopia, build things exactly the way that you want to. And I think that that's true and, and more people should sort of embrace that mindset. Um, but in terms of just like downsides of this, there are absolutely downsides of this model. Um, first and, and foremost, uh, I think around hiring, there's actually some things that are challenging. So the structure without question has been our biggest recruiting tool. And we have like a crazy backlog of people that want to work with us, but we can't pull some of the strings that you normally would pull to hire somebody. So as an example, um, there was someone, uh, a woman last year who I would want to hire. I wanted to hire. I still want to hire um, to essentially act as outset as CEO. So first of all, we don't, you know, technically have a CEO. We just have all these mm -hmm. people that come and work together. So we can't offer her the title of CEO. And beyond that, she's an impressive person. Typically, if you're trying to recruit somebody like that, particularly for a CEO role, one of the things you would do is issue them a, a pretty large equity grant. That's not the way our equity works. We can't just hand you a percentage ownership of the company on a platter. Um, everybody starts earning equity in the business based on how many hours they elect to choose to work for equity. So for someone to get the, whatever it is, three or 5% equity that a CEO might typically get in a more typical SaaS company, they'd have to work here until they'd earned that three or 5% rather than us being able to use it as a recruiting tool. So there's definitely some things that are um, abnormal that we need to adjust for, um, but that's fine. It's really fascinating. So when you talk about how other organizations do this at a bigger level, is there really no limitations to this in your mind? Like, what do, what do you think? Can this democratic structure where you have unlimited earning, or I guess unlimited earning potential based on the company's profits and all that, and that democratic voting structure, is that, to your, in your opinion, just infinitely scalable? I do not think it is infinitely scalable. Um, so there are a lot of um, companies, they're mostly, mostly in South America or Europe that have embraced self-management and done this at a greater scale. Um, I know several that have gotten into the thousands of employees that have used this and used this well. Um, personally, I kind of believe that it is scalable to a certain point. I don't know exactly where that point is. Um, I think without question, like 100 or 200 employees could probably be managed using this structure. But I, I at least believe that if you get into the thousands this is probably going to break down. This probably doesn't make a lot sure. of sense. And you almost need more structure and management at that point. Um, but that's kind of a hypothesis on my end, I guess. Okay. Are you are a fully remote team? We're a fully remote team, yep. Do you, do you see one way or the other, uh, whether you're in person, in office, or remote, having an impact on this democratic structure? Um. 
That's a good question. Everyone likes to talk about it these days, right? In in office versus remote. <laughs> yeah, I, I would say we're fiercely remote and and always will be. Um, honestly, I haven't thought too much about the mechanics and whether this would work better if we were um, in office or hybrid versus all remote. Um, I, I typically think that you start to encounter more problems if you do have a hybrid environment. Um, particularly if there's like a swath of people that are in the office every day and then a swath of people that are never in the office. I think that almost naturally creates some level of divide and sort of some, um, I don't want to say politics, but some some separation within the organization that wouldn't otherwise be there. Uh, my hunch is it would be better to be all in person or all remote. I agree. Yeah. So last thing on this philosophical conversation before we get into the product. Sure. One concept that I was super fascinated with because, you know, as, as a young entrepreneur and, and many others go through this, it's, it's a constant conversation. You talk about life pro- profitability a lot. And this stems yep. from the, um, the book, uh, yep. which I just put, put on my list and I'm definitely going to read. Yep. But, it, you know, talk about how essentially life is more important than business. Everyone knows that and happiness being more important than money. But optimizing your business and your work so that you're the entrepreneur of your life rather than of yeah. your business, and you're maximizing the, this like concept of life profits. Yep. Why did that stick out to you so much? Because I, I know you said you uh, when in your blog like this is only the second book that you like felt like you had to write about. You know, yeah. what was it that stuck out to you so much? Yeah, I think it. So for, first of all. Um, you hit the nail on the head with the concept of life profitability. Like it's a phrase that most people aren't familiar with. It basically just means like as entrepreneurs, we look at our businesses and we know like, like how much money they're making, how profitable are they from a a dollars and cents perspective. But we rarely, rarely look at our lives and ask the same question in terms of happiness. Like how rich are we from a happiness perspective? Like we don't have a way to, we don't have a way to quantify it in, in the same way. And the other, the other point related to those two things is these are not mutually exclusive, right? You absolutely need to have some financial success in order to enable the type of life success and life profitability that you want. It's, it's not an either or, um, but why it's so important to me all comes back to the idea of as a young entrepreneur, why do you start a company in the first place? What is the objective of starting a company? And I would argue the objective is to enrich your life in, in some ways. Yes, part of that is probably you know financially enriching your life. But would you start a company if it wasn't going to make your life better? Like, shouldn't that ultimately <laughs> be what we're after? I think when you think about it that way, the answer is unequivocally yes. Like, I'm launching this business to try to make my life better. Yet, if you look at the entrepreneurial landscape, I see a ton of entrepreneurs who are miserable. Uh, And even those that have successful businesses, they are just working crazy hours. They're stressed. Um, You know, they're not giving their families the time that their families deserve. And I don't think that enough of them step back and say, you know what, this business, even if it is putting money in my pocket, is not enriching my life. So when I think about life profitability, it's just always coming back to, is this business actually making my life better or not? And I think it's equally important to recognize, like we've had, I told you in year three at Outsetto, we struggled a lot. Like 
we've had tough patches and the objective is not to hit a tough patch and say, oh, life is tough. I need to quit this business. But you need to constantly be doing the same level of accounting in terms of, is this making my life better? Um, or is this just making me miserable for years on end? <laughs> did Before you read the book, did this always be, was this always something on your mind? Or was it kind of like you were thinking somewhat along those lines and then you read the book and it was just super clear to you? <laughs> yeah, I've always been thinking along these lines. So my, my intention in launching the company um, was always to enrich my life. I hadn't thought about it in the language of life profitability. Um, like reading yeah. the book uh, was just a perfect articulation of sort of what I'd felt in my heart, to be honest with you. Um, but I, I think for me, like the reason I started the company was I said, I want to work for myself. I want to be able to work remotely. I want to be able to take time off when I need to. I want to be able to go to my kids' sporting events when I have kids. Like I want to be able to travel, all those kinds of things. And I knew going in that I didn't care and I still don't care about building a billion dollar company. If I could take 20 employees and build a $10 million company and everyone's compensated really well and loves working there, that would give me the freedom to do the things with my life that I want to do um, in, frankly, a way that a billion dollar company probably wouldn't. So that was mm -hmm. kind of the lens that I was looking at this through anyways. Um, and then the, the book life profitability was just a perfect articulation of, of, of why, I guess. So what is it about you? Because I, I guess where this question is coming from is most people don't, most people see entrepreneurship and they go, all right, great opportunity to make money. I can yeah. find whatever business model I can be good at. And then the, I'm hitting my goal of making a lot of money. Sure. But they don't stop and have that conversation with themselves, especially young and growing up, that they need to maximize their happiness and do something that they love and create a business that they're proud of. They're just yep. and there's there's extreme examples of this too. And this is like a serious issue, especially as entrepreneurship becomes more popular. You see like the extremes of like Elizabeth Holmes, where it just gets so overwhelming and they get caught up in this like fraud and saying sure. we see in the news now with um Sam Bankman Fried of FTX, like there's always these stories, right? Yeah. Um, was this something that you, what makes it different about you when you were younger that you just avoided that mentality and you went this health, healthy route? Yeah. Well, I, I think the other thing, um, I want to make clear is I want to make a ton of money. <laughs> uh, like I yeah. have no problem. I have no <laughs> problem okay. with, I have no problem with making a ton of money whatsoever. I am not like an independently wealthy person growing up. I'm not an independently wealthy person as we sit here today. I would certainly like, you know, a couple years from now to have that not be the case. And I have no problem with making money whatsoever. Um, but, you know, people tend to look at someone like me that's saying the things that I'm saying and say, oh, he's building a life cycle or, or a lifestyle business. And I think that has taken on this negative connotation that is like, this person isn't aggressive. This person doesn't want to have, you know, runaway success. Um, and that's not true at all. As I said, I, I want to have a lot of financial success. I think it comes down to just a realization that like, if I make $20 million versus if I make $200 million, am I going to be dramatically happier? I don't think so. I think there's a point where if you make enough money and you sort of have your financial freedom, everything above that is you just chasing your ego, essentially. Um, and people like something that drives me crazy. I see 
entrepreneurs go on and have these runaway successes. And then they come back and do it again and do it again and do it again and spend their whole life working these 80 hour weeks. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you point blank, I want to make a ton of money, but that would never be me. Uh, people ask me like if Outsetta is a runaway success and you have this massive exit, like what would you do? Would you start angel investing? Would you start another tech company? My answer is unequivocally no. <laughs> and it's not that I don't like tech. I, lo I love working in tech. Um, and it's not that I don't want to support other startups. I would love to support other startups, but I'm a human being. I've already worked in tech for 12, 13 years. I envision I'm going to work in it for 10 more years. There's a lot of other stuff that I'd like to do with my life that's completely unrelated to startups, that's completely unrelated to tech. And if I had the financial freedom to go and pursue those things, um, I'd almost think it was lame if you didn't go pursue something else and you just continued to do the same thing over and over and over. Um, so I guess that's kind of how I think about it. Yeah, at least in place of doing work, right? If people, like if you're picking one or the other, if some people are doing both after, you know, hitting that accomplishment, then respectable. Yeah. What, did you have, how old are you, by the way? I'm 36. So relatively very young, did people, did you have mentors? Did you have parents like conditioning you to, to think this way when you were younger or what makes you so like wise that most people just don't get? It? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I think I've had, I've had a lot of, um, good mentors in, in general. Um, two that or, or two in particular come to mind. My, my dad is an entrepreneur himself. Um, he is a structural engineer and I think aspects of my interest in entrepreneurship certainly came from him. He is mm -hmm. incredibly smart, a hundred times smarter than I ever dreamt of being. And he's sort of the, um, typical example of an entrepreneur who is incredibly talented at what they do, but never took the business part maybe as seriously as they should have. My dad is this like world-class engineer and is not world-class rich um, is, is one way of putting it. And I think I saw that growing up and I developed an interest in entrepreneurship and I um, have a strong work ethic as a result of that. But I also sort of recognized that wealth does not necessarily correlate to how talented you are or how much value you're putting out into the world. Like making, making money is very different from how good you are at what you do. And making sure. money really is a result of how much you prioritize making money, to be, to, yeah. to be frank. Um, and then the other two um, would be at the, the first software company I worked at, Buildium. Um, one of the two co-founders, Dimitri, is now my co-founder at Outseta. The other one, his name is Michael. Um, were huge influences on me early on. Um, they did build, you know, a, a tech company that we grew quite aggressively and made tons of money and all those sorts of things. But they did it in an extremely people-friendly way um, to the extent where when they had a big payday, you know, they took money that they did not owe to anybody. It was contractually theirs and they distributed it to other employees when they didn't need to just because they thought it was the right thing to do. And I saw all of that. And again, it goes back to just like reflecting on how I was treated. And I said, that's the way to run a company. That's the way to get mm -hmm. people to work hard for you and to be motivated and to keep them engaged over the long term. So I think those are kind of the major influences that have led to me thinking this way to the extent that I do. 
Yeah. So you were pretty fortunate from a young age, having your dad and seeing and learning by example, and then, you know, getting into the workforce, having other people within you, within your company to be that influence for you. It sounds like you were, you know, pretty fortunate in that respect. Totally. Um, And I I think an interesting thing about my career path is I sort of my first job out of college, I had no idea what I was getting into. And I walked into this amazing situation. And to be fair, I did a good job. Like I, I didn't screw things up. Um, and I recognized it was a good opportunity and stuck with it for a while and all of that. Uh, but I think starting your career in a company that was so well operated and that had so much success um, was just massively beneficial in terms of the network I was able to build, in terms of what I learned on the job and all those kinds of things. And what I see happen a lot more often with people is they get out of school and their first job, their first two jobs, their first five jobs, they're kind of lost and they're kind of finding themselves and trying to figure out what their interests are. And then maybe, you know, in their later 20s or early 30s, they find themselves in that great company. Um, and they sort of realize it at that point. I had almost the inverse experience. I started out with that great company. And after that, I went to a few other jobs. I did some consulting and I sort of saw things not done as well. And I said, oh man, like, if I'm going to go off and build my own business, I know what I want because I had that experience mm-hmm. so early in my career, whereas a lot of people kind of find it later. Yeah. Yeah. It's hopefully sooner or later people do have that experience. Absolutely. Um, okay. Let's let's talk about the product because there's a lot of cool, exciting stuff that you guys are building <laughs> and have built. So the way I imagine or I, I my perspective of us at it is, you know, it's a keyword no code. Uh uh, tool sure. to for you know early um, SaaS founders or info product builders that are just looking to integrate you know some of the biggest tools um, you know Webflow uh, uh, replace like something like a CRM in PipeDrive or HubSpot and essentially you yeah. know billing your customers on subscription uh, getting data from your CRM around those customers email automations uh, automating the help desk and the user authentication so you have like a, a good core of products here. I guess my first question around the product lineup is what did you start with or did you envision from the beginning? Oh, this is what it's all going to be, you know, roundabout. Yeah. So that's probably the most interesting part of our, our product story is we said from the get go, we need to build all this. Uh, like okay. the value, the value prop about Seta is that all of these tools being tied together is really what delivers the value. It's what allows you to launch faster. It's, a, it's what allows you to manage your business from within a single platform. Um, so if you look at like HubSpot, for example, versus Outseta, and we can talk about how they're the same and different later, but they had completely different origin stories and they've kind of ended up in the same place with regards to the feature set. HubSpot said, we're going to focus you know, solely on inbound marketing. And then over time, they built a CRM and a service desk. And now they offer some, offer some payments tools and that kind of stuff. We said, no, um, we need to have a basic version of all of this in order for a startup to launch quickly. So what that meant practically, as I said, it took us two years to even deliver an MVP, uh, which is a long time to work on something before you've got a product out in the market. Um, but having lived the alternative, we knew that if we can build these tools to the point where they're competitive with other 
you know, more specialized software products on the market, this is a better solution. We had a very high degree of conviction of it on that, which is why we were able to say we're going to devote two years to, to building this. Um, but to, to answer your, your question more directly, you do need to start somewhere, right? Um, so the very first tool that we built was um, sort of the first version of our email marketing functionality. Okay. And I would not have thought that we, that we would start there. Um, but literally, like we built the tools in the order that we needed them. Um, so we wanted to send an email to like announce that we were building out Zeta. So we built the email tool and <laughs> sent it without Zeta. Okay. Um, and, and then we kind of um, just added on like, oh, okay, now we've got some people on this email list. We need a CRM to be able to sort of manage those people and store their information somewhere. So we started in on the CRM. And then when we got to the point where we were ready to actually charge customers, we built the billing system. Um, so it was a natural evolution, but it wasn't until we had built sort of all the, there's sort of four or five key categories of software that we cover that we said, okay, like we have an MVP, we're ready to go to market with this thing. Sure. Okay. And knowing that you guys have a, a ton of integrations with different tools to be able to bring it all into, into one place and outside of, do you, there's a lot of flexibility. Do you see in your customer base, one dominant type of customer or in terms of business model or what they're running, not to exclude anybody. There's, like I said, a sure. lot of different possibilities, but yeah, so there, there's um, a couple different ways that we look at this. There are three use cases that I would say are very, or I wouldn't say they are very common within our customer base. Um, the first one is technical founders building SaaS products. That's what we are ourselves. Like we're a traditional software mm -hmm. company that's built on top of Outseta. Second would be uh, what I would call no-code membership sites. So these are less technical builders that have, written content, video tutorials, et cetera, that they want to charge for access to. Um, without question, most of those are built on Webflow, not, not all of them. You can really deliver your content or product or community or whatever it is, however you want, but Webflow is extremely common. Um, and then the third is online communities. Um, so you're just charging for access to your online community, essentially. Those are the use cases. Um, in terms of the technologies that we're most commonly integrated with, um, the SaaS products are kind of off on their own because everyone picks their own tech stack and uses whatever coding and development frameworks they want. Um, so that's certainly one, one bucket. Uh, but other than that, I would say it's, it's Webflow first and foremost. Um, a lot of communities built on top of Circle. Uh, and mm -hmm. then the third one that, that's really coming on really strong right now is um, Notion as well. Uh, all sure. products that we integrate with a lot. I imagine for info products. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. Um, on the topic of, of no code, this is something I'm, I'm so fascinated by. I've said this before in the show, but I'm on Twitter a lot. And one of the biggest trends I've seen, especially in the past like six to 12 months is there's just founders building things that would never be able to be built with no code recently. You have like yep. 17 year old high school kids building like a, sense. like you said, an info product or, uh, even a software that is not, it has a unique value proposition to the market doing sure. like 40 K a month, you know, it's completely built in like three days. They don't do any hard coding. Yep. It's almost like you, you know, you press a button, you ask artificial intelligence, build a business for me and it's done. It's just, it's fascinating. Um, so beyond the simple concept of just let's make things quicker and easier. 
why is these th this no code movement so important for what's happening in tech and you know the market? Yeah, no, no code is huge, and I'm not just saying this because of, like we have a product in the no code space. I think people are at large sleeping on no code to a huge extent. Like you hear so much buzz about Web three, and we can talk about Web three and whether you think it's legit or not. Um, now we're seeing so much, uh, so much buzz around AI and uh, I'm pretty bullish on AI. I think AI is, yeah. A, a did you great... see uh, open AI yesterday? Come on. I out did. Yeah. Yeah. Incredible. Absolutely. Incredible stuff. Um, but I think people almost tend to downplay no code and that comes largely, or at least historically has come largely from the real technologists in the tech industry um, the, the coders, the designers, um, sort of looking at no code and saying like, you know, this isn't as powerful as what we can do without code. And of course it's not, but that's not the point. The thing that yeah. is so impressive about no code is it can take someone like me. I am pretty non-technical. I'm real, like really pretty non-technical. I could never have built half of the type of businesses that I can build today with no code. And if you talk about tech and like what tech is supposed to do, it's supposed to enable people to do something that they couldn't do before. And yeah. you can talk about how exciting AI is, how exciting uh, Web3 is. No code's every bit as exciting and as impactful because it's allowing people like myself mm -hmm. to build companies that they never could have built before. And I see it every single day in our customer base. It's yeah. really, really cool. I think that's a good way of framing what's supposed to be happening. I mean, 150 years ago, you could not go coast to coast without exactly. a horse. And it would take yep. you still a lot of weeks, <laughs> uh, maybe months. Yep. And, you know, Henry Ford and the Wright brothers changed that. Um, and now we're, you know, technology advances at an ex exponential rate. And now we're seeing products being built, like I said, by 17-year-old kids that just have not been built before. And even 20 years ago, would require hundreds of thousands of dollars of yep. developer, you know, talent. It's just incredible. Um, now, my question is, was this anticipated six years ago when you started out set up? Because it's really taken off since then. No, it was not. And this is uh, probably one of the things that I screwed up and I'm most responsible for, to be honest with you. So um, when we started out, really? we were, yeah, we were focused 100% on selling to other founders of SaaS companies. Uh, we built mm -hmm. this company point blank because as founders of a SaaS company, uh, we said, we see an efficiency. We think we can solve this problem for other technical founders. And one of the pieces of startup advice that everyone gives that I think is generally good startup advice is particularly when you're getting started, like niche down on a target audience and don't take your eye off the ball, like serve that customer really, really well. And that's what we did with technical founders of SaaS companies for the first three or four years that we were in business. Even in year three, where I, I said we were struggling, I was like, this is our target audience. Like, we need to continue to serve them. The product's just not good enough yet. Like, we just need to work harder. And around that time, so this is 2019-ish, um, some people started mentioning to me no code. They were like, there's this thing called no code. It's kind of starting to emerge. <laughs> um, we think Outseta might actually be a really good fit for no code builders because no code builders don't have the technical skill set to integrate all these tools and sort of build the perfect tech stack, like you're going to be that much more valuable to them. And I was kind of like, I got, I've got my blinders on in a good way. We're focusing on SaaS developers, like no code isn't our, our thing. And frankly, I was wrong. 
Um, so we started to get some inbound interest, mostly from people building on Webflow, being like, wait, I can hook this up to my Webflow site and have like a fully functioning subscription business in a day or two. And it got to the point where we basically just got pulled into the no code community because so many people started signing up. And I eventually scratched my head and said, okay, like this is a, an opportunity that we need to take a look at. And we went through a whole process of sort of um, no codifying Outseta. The early versions of Outseta were designed to be integrated with code. And it wasn't as easy to integrate with a, a website builder like Webflow as, as it could have been. So we basically made everything so anybody can implement it that's completely not technical. Um, and that's really what caused our first major uptick in growth. Um, and what we kind of realized thereafter was even, um, even in no codifying the product and making it easier for a non-technical builder to implement, all those sorts of changes still benefit a developer. Like if you can implement a technology easier, faster, quicker, it's, it's good for everybody. Um, sure. So we have this customer base today that's very much split uh, between kind of developers and, and no coders. And one of the challenges for us as a company is like, whenever we're receiving support tickets or talking to a customer, we need to very quickly suss out who they are. Is this a really technical person? or someone sure. that's very non-technical and how do we sort of tailor our advice and guidance um, to the persona that we're serving? I, that stands out to me a lot because as a Stripe user in the past and non-technical person, you go yep. to their knowledge base and it's very code heavy. And you're like, I don't know how yep. to do this simple setting without coding. And you know, maybe they have improved since I last checked, but I think that's super important from a support perspective. And talking about your customer base, I think it's very interesting to think about their their incentive to and their motivation to do what they do. Like you said, half of them maybe could be just non-technical people and they're just looking to build something. We had um, Matteo Grassi on the show uh, a couple weeks ago um, who was building a no-code uh, funnel builder for e-commerce and Shopify stores. Sure. Um, and we talked about the no code development and he talked, he got really philosophical. He's talking about how, you know, what separates humans from animals is that we have this ability to ask for a reason and ask why something is and, and use imagination to create ideas. And from a biological perspective, everybody can create an idea. And now no code is allowed for the first time ever. Like you like talked about this motion of, the ability to create whatever you want without needing certain skill sets and just kind of sit down on a computer and build something. Yep. Now, do you, do you ever see like, what's your customer feedback? Like, you know, do they ever say like, Hey, I, all I had was this idea and now I, I use this tool, I use this tool and outside it brings it all together and boom, like, have you seen that as well? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, a huge portion of our customer base is people that could not, have been entrepreneurs in the same way, or at least built the same ideas even five years ago that they're they're building on Outseta today. Um, and a lot of our most successful customers, and I think this is true of entrepreneurship in in general, um, not not just our customer base. Like a lot of our most successful customers are people that are absolutely not technologists in any way. They have some sort of domain expertise in a particular industry. Um, and that's really their skill set. Like they, um, I don't know, they love 
selling handbags online and like building the perfect handbag is, is what they're good at and what they're passionate about and ultimately why their company is successful. We just enable them to, you know, create the, the storefront and run the business in a way that they never could have previously without, you know, spending thousands of dollars on designers and developers and all that kind of stuff. So I think it is just an enablement play um, and it is creating a whole new sort of category of entrepreneurs that didn't exist previously. And I think at first, frankly, um, developers to some extent were a little critical of no-code tools because they realized that all of a sudden there were a lot more entrepreneurs who are sort of dangerous enough to actually launch businesses. Um, and yeah. now that no-code has become more popularized, I think we're actually finally starting to win over developers. And I see a lot of developers using no code now because they're saying there are these speed to market advantages. Like, why would I code yes. this just because I can? Um, if I can launch my business faster, just like a no code founder can, I'm going to do that. And I'm going to reserve my time uh, to write code for when I need to write code. And I think that's the right mindset. Yeah. And you did, you mentioned the speed to market and you, you guys have published content around this where it's, Hey, here's like, I think it's 28 time-saving tools for developers or non-developers to use outside of yep. and build something that might take weeks otherwise to do or just yep. flip a switch and it's on. Did, how early did you realize that you needed to do something like that and, and you know have that motivation to do something like that? Yeah, I, I think that was um, me getting better at marketing to developers. Um, a challenge... <laughs> As a non-developer. Yeah, challenging aspect um, of marketing to any audience that you're not a part of is, is learning to think like them. And I'm the first one to tell you, I do not think like a developer. Uh, I'm, a, <laughs> I'm a writing major again. Uh, right. but one of like one of the things I, I would say, just to give you like a more concrete example of that is out of the gates, our marketing to developers was like, here's a complete tech stack. You've got your help desk, your billing, your CRM and your email marketing, and they're integrated. And to be frank, the response was, who cares? Like there's yeah. better email tools. There's a better CRM. There's a better billing system and I can integrate them because I'm a developer. Um, that really like that message still today doesn't resonate that hard with most developers. But if you look at um, even just integrating like a subscription billing system with your website, with your authentication tools, there are all of these tiny little workflows, which is what the article you reference is about that no product handles out of the box and developers always have to write custom code. An example mm -hmm. would be if one of your customers has a payment fail, um, can they log into their account and continue to use your software or do you stop them when they try to log in and ask them for payment? This is something every developer in the history of the world has eventually custom coded. And if you're using separate authentication tools and payment tools, you need to yeah. get those tools to interact, to build out that workflow. Next thing you know, you've lost a day building that. Outseta gives yeah. you those sorts of workflows out of the box because all the tools are, are interconnected. So instead of focusing on, here's this perfectly integrated tech stack, we started pointing out like, here are all these little examples of things that you're going to have to build. And you probably know that because you probably built them in your last company. And if you look at this stuff collectively, Outset of just paid for itself a hundred times over. Um, and yeah. it's resonated a lot more than sort of what we did previously. And I, I think it's smart because it goes back to, you know, we have a nimble team. We're trying to stay small. 
you're doing this one to many thing that everybody suffers from at, at some point, yep. like you said, like the payment failing thing, everybody goes through that at some point. So it, sure. it's very wise to take that strategy, not from a, not just from a marketing perspective, but from a product perspective. Um, on the topic of all the features that Outset has, you know, it's, it is unique, but what makes it so unique from the other options on the market or, you know, competitors and what's your, how do you frame your unique selling point and your differentiation? Yeah, it, it, honestly, it's hard to communicate and it, it's something, um, I, I've always struggled with. I'm still struggling with, I, I think we're getting better at it. Um, and I, I have a tendency I know um, to almost like talk down to to our product and make it sound unexciting, and um, I, I say this <laughs> I, I say this because I, I mean it. But like you look at our feature set, and there's nothing about it that is terribly unique. Like we are an email marketing system, we're a CRM, we're a subscription billing tool. We're quite comparable to the other tools on the market that you're probably familiar with across those categories of software. And I don't say that to be uninspiring. I say that because it's the truth. And like, if you're looking for this one beautiful, shiny feature that is like completely differentiated, <laughs> frankly, you're not going to find it. Um, what is unique is what you can, first of all, two things, I guess there's two things, how fast you can launch a business. The speed to market thing is absolutely the initial selling point. But beyond that, it's what you can build because all of these tools are interconnected and the example of sort of stopping someone from logging in and prompting them for payment is one example. Uh, but another one that's really, really common is let's say you want to try to reduce churn within the context of your subscription business. One way that you can do that is identifying accounts that sort of become disengaged. So we have a workflow within our software where if we see that someone hasn't logged into the software in 14 days, uh, we make note of it. We send them an automated email saying, hey, you know, you haven't logged in in 14 days, blah, blah, blah. Do you need some help? Do you have feedback for us? That kind of thing. Every subscription business sets up that workflow. But if you set it up with a separate CRM, a separate email marketing tool, and a separate authentication tool, the authentication tool needs to recognize someone hasn't logged in in 14 days. It typically is going to send that information to your CRM. That's going to be used to trigger your email. You can build out that workflow. I've built out that workflow in other companies, but it, it takes a day or two of work and you've got to you know, integrate these three systems just to get that simple workflow out, out the door. And outside of you can build that in th literally 30 seconds. Um, so it's, it's been more about how can we show people how much efficiency um, they gain by all of these tools talking to each other immediately and, and really efficiently. Yeah, I think you, I, I'm on the same, I'm, I'm with you. And I think one, you got to give yourself credit for explaining it the way you do. Cause like you said, it is hard because from the front end, people just see the feature list and they see what it does. And they're saying, yep. I've seen this a million times. Why do I even need yep. this? But when you really stop and think about it, and this is something I did when I looked at outside at first and I was like, there's nothing else that brings it all together this way. Right. Like yep. I, this is, if you really think about, oh, what would, what's the process of connecting point A to point B and how, how long does that take? And if, you know, in the instance of the examples you gave, if that came up, what, what would I do? You know, <laughs> like yep. th these are real practical problems. If you sat and thought about it and then you looked at it outside, you're like, oh, this is the solution. And 
it's tough from a marketing perspective. <laughs> I, I can't is. imagine what your job is like. <laughs> yeah, people honestly, like the number one thing that we hear all the time is uh, people people look at Outsetta and they say it sounds too good to be true. And if you're doing all these things, you're not doing any of these things well. And that is totally valid. It's a totally valid thought process. That's what I would be thinking. That's what I would be saying. Those are the questions I would be asking. Um, and I think the the truth is kind of twofold now. One is at this point, the product's pretty damn good because we've been working on it for six years. So it, sure. it took us a while to build <laughs> those feature sets, um, you know, just to, to get to the point where we're at and, and we are competitive. But I think beyond that too, it's we sell to relatively early stage startups. And when I look at the more powerful, more specialized software tools, that most companies still used, still use, they're used very fractionally. They're, you know, they're using only a percentage of MailChimp or a percentage of HubSpot or a percentage of Zendesk. And the features that they're not using are oftentimes features that are built for larger companies to sort of grow into over time. We don't have to have perfect parity with those tools. We don't have perfect parity with those tools because at an early stage, you don't need all the bells and whistles. You need sort of the... Mm -hmm the core email functionality, the core CRM functionality. Um, and our argument is actually like the fact that the tool is a little bit more simple and fully integrated far outweighs the benefits of a few features here or there that we might be missing. Um, and that, again, it comes back to that thought process really resonates with some people. And then there's other people that are just going to say, I want the absolute most powerful technology across each of these categories. And that's fine. They kind of self-select out of Outsetta. Sure. That's, a, well, that's my next question. And it's probably a difficult one is, do you have customers that outgrow you? Do you uh, encourage yeah. them to? Do you want to grow with them? What's the, what's the thinking around that? Yeah, that, that's honestly like the worst part of Outsetta. Uh, and the way that I communicate this to other people is if you're a venture capitalist looking at Outsetta, objectively, you would be like, this is a horrible idea. Um, seriously, you would, it's like, we're bootstrapping this massive product that's taken years to come to market. We sell it to bootstrapped founders who have a budget of zero. Typically, mm -hmm. um, you're going to see high degrees of churn because we're selling to startups. Um, there's just so much about this business that is unattractive to, to be honest with you. And, and that goes back to why we've made decisions like keeping the team small, like everybody does support, like we have no sales sure. team. We need to make sacrifices in order to make this business work from a financial perspective. Um, so I, I don't know. I think that's, that's interesting. And uh, at the end of the day, yes, our, our biggest customers do outgrow us. That's something we're aware of. That's something we have to plan for. But our, our mindset for what it, it's worth is we want to take companies from day day one and zero dollars in revenue to about $10 million in revenue. We want to be the best tech stack to serve that customer journey. And I think, frankly, even the fastest growing companies in the world going from zero to 10 is going to take them years. Um, and that's plenty of time for us to capture enough lifetime value to, to run a, a great business and bringing it back to HubSpot. The way that we kind of look at this, and I, I don't bring up HubSpot, like honestly, we very rarely sort of compete with them. In some cases we do, but we have bigger competitors than HubSpot. But I think the reality is like a company like HubSpot, they say they're you know a tech stack for sort of scaling or growing companies. 
being publicly traded, being a billion dollar company, they really want to serve customers from like $10 million a year in revenue upwards. We want to play in that lower end of the market that frankly is pretty underserved today. And it's bigger. <laughs> You're serving bigger. one to many. There's a lot more people at the bottom. Yep. And yep. it's it's a good problem to have because <clears throat> if you if you're selling one to many again and you have that bigger market, you're you can run a very profitable business and grow. You know, you've done so much in six years, in the next six years, or whenever you guys are having it planned for it, you could plan for that future of all right, let's serve even bigger and better. Um for so sure. it's, it's fascinating. I want to talk about uh Webflow and Stripe because it seems sure. as if those two are some of the biggest yep. partnerships or integrations that you have. I don't know if you have like dedicated partnerships with them, but uh, I saw you were at the Webflow. Okay. I saw you were at the Webflow conference a couple weeks ago. You guys are yep. very invested in, you know, working with them. Uh, one, how is it that you're able to offer Stripe integration with uh, cheaper rates? <laughs> um, and two, what you know, we talked about Webflow and kind of it's taking over. What fascinates you so much about Webflow? So talk about a little bit about those two ones as your meat and potatoes. Yeah, I'll, I'll start with I'll start with Stripe. Um, so with Stripe, first and foremost, like where Outset it came from initially was we built subscription billing for Stripe because it didn't exist. Stripe had not built like a great billing system for SaaS founders. They had great APIs, and you could integrate their APIs um, with your SaaS product, but I don't know how familiar you are with Stripe, but Stripe billing today is Stripe's sort of no-code billing system. Mm -hmm. And they have built um, a product that's extremely similar to Outseta from a billing perspective. Um, we started about two to three years before they did and sort of solved the problem because Stripe hadn't solved it. Stripe launched you know, a competitive product. And now our, our value prop is really... Sure, Stripe offers very similar billing tools, but we wrap it in the CRM and the email marketing and the help desk. Um, so we're this all-in-one tech stack that Stripe is not. And that's kind of the um, competitive differentiator or why people choose outset of versus Stripe billing. Um, from the perspective of processing payments and how much it, it costs, um, this is just a topic that nobody understands, to be honest with you. I, every, everybody that I talk to assumes that if they're using Stripe, they're paying 2.9% per transaction yes. if you're in the US. That is almost unequivocally not true. You are almost definitely paying a lot more than that. The bare minimum payment processing fee that Stripe will charge on a transaction is that 2.9%. And Outseta charges that too. Um, every single Outseta customer is connected to Stripe on the back end. That transaction fee is going to be the same no matter what. If you use Stripe billing, they charge you additional fees to create subscription products in Stripe, um, yeah. to charge taxes, to do all these other things that Stripe does. Those are incremental fees. And I'm not ragging on, I don't mean it to rag on Stripe, but they don't ever show those to you in a single invoice. You never get an invoice that's like, here's all the fees that you're paying to Stripe. It's all yeah. taken out at the transaction level. So it's actually hard for people to know what the effective rate that they're paying is if they're using Stripe or most other billing products. Um, without Seta, the thing that's different is we built all of our own subscription management. We built the UI to set up your products. We built all that stuff. So we don't rely on Stripe for that. And what that means is we don't incur those extra charges. So if you look at Outseta, it's almost always actually cheaper to process payments without Seta versus Stripe or any other alternative 
plus you get the rest of the tech stack. Um, so that's just not well understood. But at the end of the day, like we live and die by Stripe. You can't use Outsetto without a Stripe account. Stripe is like we're a Stripe verified partner and, and all of that. And uh, I think the world of Stripe in general, they enable us to, to build what we've built. So um, and are a huge customer acquisition channel for us. Awesome. Webflow, um, Webflow is different. Um, so our journey with Webflow started because Webflow did not have a way of charging subscription payments and also did not have a way of having people log in and out of a Webflow site. Similar to Stripe, that's since changed. They offer both now. Um, so again, like our, our value prop more and more is this all-in-one nature, and that's why you would use Outsetto with Webflow rather than just the tools that, that Webflow offers. Um, but I could not be more bullish on Webflow in general. And it's for a very similar reason to our conversation around no code. What Webflow is at the end of the day, um, they've sort of latched onto this term no code. I actually don't think that's a great descriptor because I think the term no code sort of implies to people that you don't need to be technical in order to use a tool. And that's not really the case with Webflow. Um, if you put someone non-technical in Webflow, it is very overwhelming. Um, and I don't mm -hmm. say that as a criticism of their product. I say it as, or like just me, the first time I went into Webflow, I was like, I don't know how to do anything in here. Agreed. Um, yeah. So there's a, there's a big learning curve. What Webflow is at the end of the day is a website builder built for designers. If you are a designer and you get into Webflow, you're almost immediately at least somewhat comfortable with it. It works the same way that your brain does. It uses concepts that you're familiar with. So the power of Webflow is it allows a designer to build stuff without needing a developer. And that is huge from an enablement perspective. As a marketer that grew up on WordPress, every time I needed to build a website, it was, we got to go hire a designer and pay them $20,000 to do the designs for this website. And then we got to go buy, uh, or then we have to go hire a developer and pay them 50 grand to actually build out and write all the code to launch this website. Webflow has cut the developer completely out of the equation. So not only does it allow you to build products more inexpensively, but it turns designers essentially into developers in a pretty significant way. Um, so I, I think it's just got, um, from that perspective, a huge opportunity to disrupt the entire website building market. Um, and that aside, I mean, I, I think there's a lot of good website building products out there today. I love Card. I love Squarespace. I love Webflow. But WordPress is still the 800-pound gorilla in the room. And it's it's like painful for me to log into WordPress at this point, to be honest with you. Once you see how some of these other tools work and how good the UIs are and what you can build with them, um, Word, WordPress is on its way out is the, the easiest way I yeah. can say it. No, I couldn't agree. Um, Webflow, I mean, uh, WordPress is the bicycle and Webflow is the car, yep. <laughs> really. Um, it, it's... Yeah, it's it's very interesting to see, and and Webflow really, I just really first heard about it in the past couple of years, I, you know, from a non-designer, yep. non-developer perspective, and now knowing that someone like myself, someone like yourself, from a marketing perspective, can use it, like again, we're we're democratizing access to tools and skill sets yep. that we didn't have before. 
Um, 100%. It's, it's, yeah, it's fascinating. So uh, as we begin to wrap up, I want to ask, we've talked a lot about different instances in which you kind of came to a realization or you, something changed along the way from six years ago. Do you have one that stands out to you where you're like, I, this is the number one thing I wish I knew when I first started, or this is the number one thing that I just did not anticipate and was a head scratcher moment. Yeah. I, I think the biggest, um, learning for me personally, um, <clears throat> having jumped into building outside of having spent the last six years doing it is, is twofold. Um, one is I've learned so much about what makes a good startup idea. Um, and that comes through my own experience of, of building the idea that we chose to build as well as just seeing millions of companies launch on Outseta and talking to founders every day about what their ideas are. So I think going forward from when we started with Outseta to where I am today, my ability to think critically about what a good startup idea is, is light years different. And to be perfectly frank, um, when I signed on to build out Seta, um, I had plenty of valid reasons, uh, but most of them were related to my two co-founders that I had the opportunity to work with. They're both a little bit older than me, a little bit more senior than me. Um, and I saw that they were just an incredibly talented tech team. And I said, I want to work with these guys. It almost doesn't matter to me what we built. Um, and realistically, um, I, I, think I could have thought more critically about the actual idea that we latched onto. One of the things um, that they said to me at the time was, we want to build out Seta because it is this, this massive product and we think it's going to hold our attention for 15 or 20 years and be technically difficult and challenging and all those sorts of things. And they weren't wrong in saying that. But boy, oh boy, did we bite off a lot <laughs> and particularly bite off a lot from a, a bootstrapping perspective. Um, so I think I would have been a little bit more critical of some of those aspects. And that dovetails into probably the biggest learning for me, which is the extent to which um, what you're, you're building kind of jives with how you're building the business. So the way I would say it point blank is... Outseta is in every single way a venture scale product. We chose a venture scale idea and product and bootstrapped it. And that has been enormously challenging. And that's why it's taken us six years to get to this point, uh, because I don't think those two things were in harmony, to be frank. I think we just built an idea and said, we're going to bootstrap it. That's an idea that's not conducive to bootstrapping. So for me, like I took massive pay cuts over the last six years. It took us five years to, or four, four years to get to the point where I was even able to work on outset of full time. Um, mm -hmm. And there's just a ton of life stress and realities that, that come with that. Now I can also tell you, I'm sitting pretty today as a result of that, as a result of sort of enduring that pain and um, uh, delaying my own gratification, if you will, like, we do can like we've gotten to the point where the business is doing well, where we have retained complete ownership in the company and whatnot. But there was a lot of sacrifice to get here today. And I'm not sure that I would do that again in the if I if I had to do it all over again. I think I would be much really? more critical of if we want to be bootstrapped and independent, fine, but let's look for something that we can build 
up substantial revenue in very, very quickly. Let's look for something that's going to lend itself to having relatively low support volume as opposed to this bigger platform type solution where we know we're always going to have a lot of support. Um, so just making sure like what you're building and how you're building it are in harmony is a topic that I think like no one talks about. We hear all this like really polarizing, do you like bootstrapping or do you like, you know, going for broke and raising venture capital dialogue, but it's never which one makes sense based on what you're actually trying to build. Sure. So to be clear, if you could go back, you still would have bootstrapped, like you wouldn't have looked to raise money. No, I think if, I think, uh, I, I think at the end of the day, why our team worked together was this philosophical alignment on wanting to remain small and independent, um, wanting to, you know, embrace self-management and do all these things that we've talked about. I think going back, I would have said, yes, let's do that, but let's choose an idea that's more conducive to doing that. <laughs> I probably okay. wouldn't sign up to build out gotcha. Seta again in that way. Or if yeah. we had said like building out Seta and this particular product idea is the most important thing, I would have said, fine, let's go do that, but let's go raise venture capital to build it. Um, mm -hmm. That's probably the single biggest learning, I would say. Yeah. And I think either way, you know, knowing where you're at now, it if if nothing changed in terms of the destination, then the journey just would have been easier. <laughs> you know, for sure. Maybe the destination would have changed. Who knows? Yep. So, one question we always like to ask everyone as we round it out here, uh, and this is going to be interesting because we a little already touched on it. If you could sit in a room every morning with a bunch of mentors, once to you know, once a morning to sit at a table and they're you know you're checking in for the day and they're sitting there and you have a, you have questions that you want to ask, they're there to help guide you every morning. Who would be in that room? Would you still have your dad? Would you still have your co-founders? Who else? They could be alive or dead. Interesting. Um, hmm. This is a weird question for me. And I, I don't want to in any way um, discount the idea of, of, mentors and advisors and all, all those sorts of things. Um, but something that I, I see a lot in the world that I live in is founders, whether they're first time founders or, or not, um, are getting backed by venture companies or accelerators or whatnot, not just because they need the money, but because there's a, a network of mentors that comes with it. And they almost um, like join those communities or those accelerate accelerators for the mentorship as much as they do the cash. And that hugely beneficial, absolutely nothing wrong with that. Um, mm -hmm. Something that was, I, I guess, maybe a little unique to my situation, going back to this point of I started my career in this company that did so well, is if you're in a company like that, that does so well, all of a sudden, all of these doors open to you. And like my very first like hired mentor was the CMO of Constant Contact, which was like one of the first SaaS companies to be a runaway success. And I've just been privy to so many super talented people within the SaaS world that as we sit here today, and, and I really don't uh, mean this the, the way it might sound like... <laughs> The mentorship that I'm looking for is much less um, focused on like, this is what you need to do to build a successful SaaS company. And it would be much more focused on um, 
sort of like the life profitability type stuff. Yeah. And like here, here's how to think about your, your, your life in general. And, um, I think I would want to pull in influences from completely different industries other than SaaS. And I, I've said this before, and I really think it's true. Um, once you've worked in the SaaS industry for a while, something that's different now than 10 years ago, the SaaS playbook is understood. Like there is a way of doing this. You need to reduce churn. You need to figure out how to make your customers successful. You need to charge enough to make sure the company is profitable and can afford to hire the types of people you need to hire. Like it's really not that hard. The mechanics of the business model are really well understood now. Now, if you're yeah, a first time founder and you've never worked in SaaS, then maybe you do need mentors to teach you some of that stuff. Um, but to get back to your question, mine would be people from all different walks of life. I kind of feel like I've got this, the SaaS mentors or the tech mentors um, under, under good wraps. Um, one person, before I get to the other people, um, I love Mark Rober. She was the initial um, chief revenue officer, VP of sales at HubSpot. Um, we don't have a sales team, so like we don't have an immediate need for him. Uh, but he's someone <laughs> I've gotten to know a little bit. And I just love the way that that guy thinks about everything related to sales and everything um, about scaling SaaS companies. Like there's a reason HubSpot was as successful as they were. And I think he was a big part of it. Um, he is someone that I would maybe want to, to pull in at some point. Uh, but beyond that, um, <laughs> I, I'm like a, a goofy Tom Brady fan. Uh, I'm from, I'm from <laughs> New England. Uh, I would love to be able to talk to Tom more just I'm about also from like, New England. <laughs> nice. Um, just about like team building and leadership and that kind of stuff. Like I, I think having someone with, with that perspective would be really interesting. Um, I actually posted something about this the other day on Twitter. The single happiest person I know in my life is my dentist, uh, as ridiculous as that sounds. Uh, really? but he's just, he's like this 60 year old guy that I literally pay out of pocket to go and have a dentist appointment with this guy every six months because he's just like... <laughs> He's just, he just has this like vigor about him and this passion for life. And like, he's figured out what he wants out of life and he has it. Um, and people like that, I would love to just kind of build a circle of people like that because they all come from different walks of life. And I think the more you surround yourself with people that have that sort of life profitability, um, they can be a great sounding board. Like I need to execute what I need to execute from the outset of perspective to make the company successful. Yeah. I kind of know that piece, but like to have these other people chirping in my ear about like, you know, here's sure. how to be a better leader. Here's how to be a happier person. Here's how to be a better father and husband and all those kinds of things. Uh, I think those are the type of people I would want to bring into my circle. So very interesting answer. And I, I like it. No, I, I, you know, this, this room is not only supposed to be business focused. So I like that you have uh, Tom Brady in there who's, <laughs> got a lot of business to him, but you know, he's, he's more so an athlete first, yeah. uh, and a good person. Yeah. And then there's a, a, so how long have you been going to your dentist? I've been going to my dentist for like five years now. Uh, I discovered the guy awesome. and I was just like, I got to go here every, every time. So, you know, what's interesting is, uh, I've, I've always heard that, I don't know if this is actually true, but most people say that dentists are the least happy people in the world yep. because they have to go through the pain of inflicting pain on others all the time. Yeah. Yeah. So to hear that someone's that enjoyable is it's good. Someone stands out from the back. Um, 
Well, Jeff, it's it's been a pleasure having you, and I've I've learned so much about Atseta before and now during meeting you, and uh, you guys are destined for great things just based on the, the the original talk that we had about the philosophy in which you guys approach business and life, and I think those two are equally maybe you know maybe not so life is more important obviously sure. um and and seeing the way that you guys conduct yourselves and the way you conduct yourself is it's extremely admirable and uh you know i'm sure people listening are going to really really love hearing this and i hope that they apply this to you know whatever it is they're building or working on whether it's a e-com store or a SaaS company or an info product and hopefully they use outseta but yeah it's it's really awesome so thank you so much i appreciate it yeah, thanks so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. Absolutely. Well, for everyone listening, go check out this episode on GoRocketCart.com. You can click on the podcast page to see our list of episodes and go follow Jeff on Twitter. Do you want to drop your handle here? We'll put it in the link as well. But what's the best place for people to follow you? Yeah, you can uh, check out Outset. It's just Outset.com. Um, it's the word Outset with an A on the end. Um, where you can find me on either Twitter or LinkedIn. Um, on Twitter, I'm at Jeff T, as in Thomas Roberts, uh, but I am a G off, so it's G E O F F for Jeff. It's a good way to remember how to spell it. All right, well, we'll put the links in there, and you know, hopefully, you know, go follow Jeff and go follow our show. And again, thank you so much, and we'll see you next time. Take care. Mm-hmm.